0: Iraq and Afghanistan have shown the immense financial and human costs of large-scale military interventions. While we must retain the ability to undertake such operations, we must get better at treating the causes of instability, not just dealing with the consequences. When we fail to prevent conflict and have to resort to military intervention, the costs are always far higher. So we will expand our capability to deploy military and civilian teams together to support stabilisation efforts and build capacity in other states, and we will double our investment in aid for fragile and unstable countries, so that by 2015, just under a third of the budget of DFID will be spent on conflict prevention.
1: David Cameron. In recent years, a disproportionate amount of aid has been swallowed up in countries such as Afghanistan and Iraq, alongside UK military operations. UK aid to Afghanistan alone is set to increase by 40% over the next three years. I'm Madeleine Bunting and this week's Guardian Focus podcast examines what some call the securitisation of aid, the subordination of aid and development programmes to defence and security objectives. And we ask, what is the role aid should play in a war zone? Joining me in the studio is Guardian columnist and foreign correspondent, Jonathan Steele, Senior Policy Advisor at the European Council on Foreign Relations, Daniel Korski, Humanitarian Conflict and Security Policy Advisor at Oxfam, Mike Lewis, and Executive Director of the campaign group War on Want, John Hillary. Hello to you all. Jonathan, you recently travelled to Afghanistan. What is DFID doing in Helmand?
2: Well, I spent about 10 days in Helmand a few months ago at uh, DFID's invitation and I stayed in Lashkargar with the provincial reconstruction team the PRT which is a combined military civilian operation and I was meant to be looking at British aid but I think the three things that really struck me were first of all the incredible security constraints uh, we were almost forbidden from going outside the environments of the the PRT. We had to go in armed convoys wherever we went. An overland trip to Nadali, which is a nearby district, which is about 10-15 miles away, had to be done by helicopter. And uh, we had armed guards even when we walked uh, in Nadali 50 metres from the their PRT, well, their forward operating base, to the local bazaar to try and talk to shopkeepers. So the security constraints are massive. And from that flows the fact that there is almost a lack of total lack of contact between the PRT, the British and American advisors, and independent Afghans. The only Afghans they meet, and there are very few of them, are government officials who are paid by the British and the Americans, and therefore not entirely free to express a, an honest, open opinion. And I think the third point was that um, even the projects that are being put up and the whole aim is to try and get more credibility for the government to make local Afghans say, yes, the government's doing this force or that force. Actually, all these projects, the money is coming from the British and the American governments. And, and the local people know that. Had the money gone to Kabul and then the Afghan government spent it locally, it might have looked a little bit better. But everybody knows it's the foreigners doing the work and they're all locked up in kind of garrisons and we hardly ever see them.
1: And, you know, did you see anything that the aid is actually being used for? I mean, schools, clinics, what's... No, there is,
2: there's, a clinic had been opened in this place, Natalie, that I just mentioned recently. Uh, reopened, I should say. There had been a clinic there before the conflict started. Uh, there are schools that they're uh, refurbishing and paying to, to clean up and to fund the teachers and so on. So, yes, there schools, clinics. Uh, the, the airport, for example, in Lashkar has now been reopened and they're trying to get some economic development because that's the other thing, which I haven't yet mentioned, is that, in addition, of straightforward grant aid, they are trying to get the local economy going, and that means creating infrastructure and airports, improving the roads, making them safe, putting tarmac and all that sort of thing so that people can bring their stuff to market more easily.
1: So within those security constraints, do they actually manage to do some good?
2: Well, I think they they are doing good, but I think the issue there becomes cost and incredibly expensive. You know, if you've got to spend sort of almost... uh, twice the person's salary who you're employing to come in on security for them because you've got to have the armed guards who are also getting very high salaries. You think, why don't they go to a, a less conflictual part, even of Afghanistan, let alone a different country in the world, where it's pe- more peaceful and the same pound could do much more good in terms of aid than a pound spent in Helmand.
1: Mike, Oxfam has just brought out a new report on this trend, and which you call the politicisation of aid in conflict zones. Can, can you explain a little bit about what you're worried about.
3: Yeah, I think at the outset it's it's probably useful uh, to distinguish between two things. As we heard in the clip at the start, um, the UK is committed to increasing its efforts to promote development in conflict-affected and fragile states. And that's a completely legitimate and useful thing to do. 22 of the 34 countries furthest away from the Millennium Development Goals are have been in or uh, are still in conflict. And although poverty is distributed globally amongst stable and conflict-affected places alike, we know that, that there are particular difficulties, as Jonathan's just described, about promoting development in, in some of the most difficult places in the world. So that's an entirely legitimate aim. What we're concerned about is that beneath that, uh, that ostensible aim to do what we do better in the most difficult places is a kind of recruitment of aid uh, for much narrower national security purposes and in some cases for the military objectives of some uh, NATO powers and other powers. Um, So if we look, for instance, at the distribution of aid, the global distribution of aid in the last decade, of the 48 states labelled as fragile or conflict affected by the OECD, a third of all the aid that's gone to those 48 states has gone to just three countries, Iraq, Afghanistan and Pakistan. And there's a whole series of other places that are equally desperate, equally in need of um, attention, that don't get the attention that those places receive. And then on the ground, we're very concerned that um, some donors – and this is not necessarily talking about the UK, which I'm sure we'll come on to, but a number of donors have prioritised kind of short-term, high visibility projects to build the kind of credibility either of military forces or of governments that, that Jonathan's been talking about. If you like, doing hardware without the software and often without the kind of sustainability and community ownership that actually makes aid projects work. Those are some of the kind of trends that we're seeing around in some of the places where we work – in Afghanistan, in northern Kenya in Yemen and elsewhere.
1: Daniel, you've worked, you were seconded from DFID uh, to work in precisely the type of PRT that Jonathan has described, working on uh, in both Af- Iraq and Afghanistan. How do you respond to some of the, the concerns that, that Mike's mentioned.
0: I mean, there's no doubt that working in some of these places is probably the most difficult development work there is. Um, It's violent, it's chaotic, one is dealing with a um, succession of political authorities, each one of which is is fighting to maintain uh, their control and their power. So there's no doubt that it's incredibly difficult, and particularly in Hellman, it's also incredibly dangerous. But I also think it's a bit of a caricature to say that all development work is exactly like what we're seeing in the Hellman PRT, which is a a, a unique set of circumstances. Um, most of what DFID has done in Afghanistan has gone um, through the Afghan state and has been targeted to build up the Afghan state. When we say the Afghan state, it isn't just about Hamid Karzai at the top. It's about building the institutions of state, whether it's the court system or the financial system and so on. And I think DFID has been on the forefront of pushing other donors to be much more in alignment with what the local government objectives are. And it has borne fruit. If you look at Two things, like the development of the health sector and the development of the education sector. There's been tremendous progress in Afghanistan, um, and in many areas that aren't as violent as Hellman, we have seen a, a far greater progress than we could have imagined when we first uh, began the effort in 2001. So, yes, it is true that in certain places it is very difficult, um, but to say that every development activity in all these 22 countries that are fragile and failing necessarily is the same as what we see uh, in Helmand. The most difficult of all circumstances, I think, would be to go too far.
2: Well, I think that is true, but um, <clears throat> you have to sort of say, well, then why are we doing it in Helmand? The government has an interest, the US government, particularly in the UK government, is going along with it, but why should DFID be so concerned about it? Um, shouldn't they you know, carry on in the other parts of the world where they're already busy and where they can, as I said before, get far more sort of bang for their pound?
0: I mean, from my perspective, DFID is a member of the government. It's a governmental department. Our tax money goes to, um, to fund the program. So I think it's completely right that DFID is part of a cross-governmental effort. And I think that an effort in Afghanistan and in Helmand would be far worse if DFID was not there, using the kind of experience they've had from other countries, telling the Foreign Office and the military what long-term development looks like, how important it is to bring in uh, local capacity to focus on, on developing sustainable outcomes. The idea that somehow DFID could simply just move on to other, inverted commas, easier places and leave other government departments to get on with whatever it is that they wanted in Afghanistan, I think would be very difficult to sell to the public and I think wouldn't necessarily produce better outcomes.
1: John, can I bring you in?
4: Yeah, I think um, it's wrong to suggest that the British intervention in Afghanistan has anything to do with development. It's been made quite clear by the government, David Cameron, in in many of his speeches and also recently in the National Security Strategy, that Britain's role in Afghanistan is driven by British interests of security and also of geostrategic principle. It's not a humanitarian intervention, a la Blair Doctrine or any of the, the ideas which have been Dealt with over the last 10 years. It's a military and strategic intervention. And from that follow all of the other consequences, particularly not for us around the politicization of aid, because aid has always been political, but around the militarization of aid. Not just the delivery of aid by military or joint military and civilian teams, but also the use of aid to militarize the Afghan state. And that's become one of the the, the characteristics of British and US interventions across the world, it's not just Afghanistan here. You look at Iraq, you look at the um, occupied Palestinian territories, where I was some months ago and spoke to the representatives of the European Union there. They were horrified at the level of militarization of the state. And that's becoming almost a sort of the leading theme for us. Build up a state, militarize it, make it stronger. Can you explain
1: how part. aid militarizes the state? And presumably in this circumstance, you're talking about the Afghan state.
4: In Afghanistan, almost half of all aid given by the U.S. government, for example, has gone to arming the police and building up the military. And so that formation of a highly militarized state with very over-excessively armed police officers with rocket-propelled grenades and all of that, that's become a facet of life in terms of our interventions. Again, within Palestine, instead of building up a democratic system, you, you put all of your eggs in that one militarized basket. You try to build up this strong excessively hyped state and that's your model for, for dealing with instability and that whole stabilization agenda this is the whole thing which is sort of forwarding this the stabilization agenda is explicitly a military agenda not a development agenda
1: so DFID should have nothing to do with it?
4: Well, I think we shouldn't be surprised if DFID's taking very much a secondary role. It's It's our presence in Afghanistan, the whole occupation of Afghanistan, is based on strategic and military interests. Nobody has ever said any different to that. So we shouldn't be surprised if then... The development side of it is kept very much in, in second place.
0: Daniel? I think we have to be a bit careful to say, why are we in Afghanistan? There's no doubt that there is a massive security and military intervention following 2001 and um, because of security concerns in the US and in Britain. But to say that 10 years later we are just in Afghanistan because of that, uh, I think would be wrong. I think we are in Afghanistan for a whole range of reasons, in part because we knew that we should have been there before 2001, building the kind of um, open society and functioning state. Now, the case may be that we weren't, um, but I think to say that we are only there with a development programme exclusively for, exclusively for security purposes, I, I think would be wrong.
1: This blurring of defence and development projects is not just an on-the-ground reality for aid in conflict zones. In London and Washington, national security and foreign aid policies are being increasingly interlinked. Last year, U.S. Secretary of State Hillary Clinton unveiled the U.S. national security strategy in just these terms.
5: It is our attempt to try to integrate many of the various aspects of national security. One of our goals coming into the administration uh, was to begin to make the case that defense, diplomacy, and development were not separate entities, either in substance or process, but that indeed they had to be viewed as part of an integrated whole. This is a comprehensive national security strategy that integrates our strength here at home, our commitment to homeland security, our national defense, and our foreign policy. In a nutshell, This strategy is about strengthening and applying American leadership to advance our national interests and to solve shared problems, starting with the so-called three Ds, Defense, Diplomacy, and Development. So we are no less powerful, but we need to apply our power in different ways. We are shifting from mostly direct exercise and application of power to a more sophisticated and difficult mix of indirect power and influence. So smart power is not just a slogan. We have to balance and integrate all of the elements of our power.
1: John, in that insert by Hillary Clinton, it sounds as if she's trying to demilitarize American foreign policy uh, and use soft power rather than the kind of military invasions that we've seen over the last 10 years. Isn't that something that, that whose direction you could be glad about?
4: Well, as she says, it's smart power, the idea of really coming to terms with the fact that the US is no longer able to project its power across the world, as it did say in the in the immediate post-war era. And that's been as a result of its experiences in Vietnam in Somalia, in Iraq and Afghanistan. It knows it cannot control countries in those ways. Yet it still wishes to intervene for exactly the same imperialist reasons that it had before and i think that's at the root of the problem they're using different methods to do so now and the militarization of aid is problematic over and above their strategic aims but it's part of a of of an old tradition if you go back to the truman doctrine in the period in 47 48 the explicit use of aid in greece to crush the pro-democracy rebels who who were rising up against the rightist regime there it's something which has come through over a long period and now The US is going back to that smart power because it hasn't got the strength to be able to to, to invade and control countries as it wishes.
1: Daniel, why would a defence minister be interested in building schools in a so-called conflict state?
0: Well, I think most people recognise today that the utility of force uh, is no longer what it used to be, if it ever was, as great as some military theorists imagined. And today people appreciate that in order to promote open societies, Uh, stable states and competent governments, it'll require a lot more than simply uh, training their soldiers or building ministries of justice. It'll require uh, schools, employment, and a much more vibrant civil society that can hold uh, government institutions to account. Most of these things are beyond the reach of a military organization. So I think for a defense secretary to want to uh, look at a country in the round in a much broader way, along with the development uh, secretary and a foreign secretary and one would assume also uh, one's uh, intelligence uh, officers uh, is is quite natural because it isn't possible to build uh, the kind of open societies and liberal states simply through military means
3: mike I think in the use of any kind of external action that a state that a state exercises it's quite important to be clear about the objectives that are being pursued so what may look like the demilitarization of foreign policy may in fact be the recruitment of what was previously poverty focused development efforts to other kind of national security goals and and that's that's something that we're concerned about here so it's not you know quite irrespective of what we are talking about in terms of uh, in terms of for instance support to foreign military forces that's quite a different piece from the use of development aid, and in some cases humanitarian aid, for national security objectives. And the thing that we're concerned about is, is not only that that leads to ineffective aid, but also that it doesn't necessarily build stability or security either. So let me give you an example. I spent quite a lot of time last year travelling around northern Kenya. It's not a particularly insecure place. It's not a place where we need to work, you know, with armed guards or with protection. In Garissa, in northeast Kenya, near the Somali border, U.S. Special Forces have been building a series of schools in places they regard as being extremism-prone. It's an enormously expensive exercise. These are schools that are comparatively low quality, and in fact, uh, in one uh, recent case that was inspected by a U.S. auditor, U.S. Special Forces actually forgotten where they'd built a school, and they came across it again and were quite surprised that it was there already. That's not the exercise of smart power. That's not winning hearts and minds. So what we're saying is that effective development, pursuing poverty-focused development goals, is, is the effective use of development
2: aid you know, as an, external, as an external activity of the state. Jonathan. Well, it was very interesting hearing Hillary Clinton just now on that clip, because she was one of the people who, when the Taliban fell, was most vociferous in saying, now women will have a chance again in Afghanistan and we, they'll have decent rights and better chance for development, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But when I was in Helmand, I asked if I could see some independent Afghan women and there was a lot of humming and hawing and they sort of said well it it might be very difficult and they said well you, you know you're a man and your photographer's a man so I don't think it'll be very easy. I said well couldn't we get an interpreter, a woman interpreter? There was an even more embarrassing pause and they said that the PRT does not employ Afghan women as interpreters. So that staggered me. I then went into it further and I found it in the district councils in in Helmand, which are largely appointed with British and American government supervision. Only one of them has any women on the council at all. And when I tackled the, the deputy head of the PRT in Helmand on this, He gave a fantastic politicisation of aid argument, except it wasn't that we're pushing aid for political reasons, but we're not pushing it for political reasons. He said, ah, well, one of the big cards that the Taliban plays is that these foreigners are coming in, they're trying to bring their Western ways, they're trying to make your women do all kinds of things that they've never done before, and we don't like it, and look what they're doing. And so he explicitly said that they're not pushing on the whole issue of gender equality in Helmand because it would only help the Taliban.
1: So it's not that aid doesn't win hearts and minds. It actually, some aid can even the wrong aid
2: can lose hearts and minds. And the wrong aid is defined by them as, as not bringing forward human rights because the Taliban will, will 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 use it as propaganda against us.
1: And also, also that aspect about the quick wins, the the health clinics and the schools. You saw an element of aid that was all about well, those quick wins, so-called
2: quick impact projects. Yes, but some of those were so quick that. Um, They've had to be redone. A lot of the schools, not in Helmand because it's a pretty flat area, but in some of the mountain areas where there are earthquake problems, they put up uh, uh, schools very quickly and now some of them having to be taken down because they're not under US and UK health and safety uh, regulations good enough.
1: So did you see any evidence that the Hearts and Minds strategy works?
2: Well, that would be very hard for me to do because, as I said, there was no contact with independent Afghans. I couldn't go to Afghans as I would if I was in northern Kenya, where where Mike has just been talking and and say, well, all right, that's very good to hear what you've said. Now I'm going to go out uh, and meet a few Kenyans and ask them, do they think they're happy with this aid, would they like it to be sent on other things, and is there enough of it, and is it providing local employment, etc. I can't ask those questions, nor could the PRT, because they have no real contact with independent Afghans. So I don't know whether they think that they're getting, uh, you know, good results or not.
1: Daniel, there's been a lot of emphasis from this government about value for money and aid. It's a very difficult one to balance up with increasing aid to conflict zones. I mean, what Jonathan's describing is actually they have no idea whether the aid is getting to the right places. They can't go and visit them even. They need a helicopter to go 15 miles.
0: I think even Jonathan would recognise that his perspective is only that, one perspective. Take the women's issue. Nobody would contest the fact that women... Uh, and girls are far better off today in Afghanistan on the whole than they were before 2001. More representation in government positions, in parliament, um, more voting than ever before, more education. Uh, I don't remember the figures offhand, but there's a tremendous growth in in immunization for for girls, uh, school attendance, and so on. So I I think we should take a a larger perspective and say um, there is a difference in some areas, and that isn't good enough. Um, And I couldn't speak for what DFID is doing there, but of course we ought to be on the side of of moderate and liberal um, progress, even if that progress will take... We're
2: talking about programs that help... Benefit women because they help everybody in the community. A school helps everybody. A health clinic helps everybody. A better road helps everybody. I'm talking about programs that specifically say women have been repressed and suppressed for centuries in Afghanistan. Now is the chance to help them. And there are plenty of those
0: programs. Bit. Maternal health programs are particularly <laughs> targeted to women. There's a women's ministry. Um, there are now people in power that n- that simply weren't in power before 2001. Now I will, would not want to sit here and say that, that things are great. I just want to provide a small corrective to the idea that somehow women ha- have completely been left behind uh, in the course of this 10-year effort. Um, I don't think that's, that's true. Now, on the specific point of the results, yes, I think there is a tension. Um, if it, It's much easier to measure results in a stable uh, place where you can uh, check uh, what the recipients think about your development programs, when you can engage in a stakeholder conversation, that is, with ministers and so on uh, of the recipient government. That isn't always possible. But if it was possible and if we only wanted to work in those places, we'd be developing northern Sweden, not southern Afghanistan.
1: Well, no, to be honest, there might be other countries. I mean, there's a lot of poverty in many parts of Africa which are more peaceful than You might get better value for money.
0: but I And my point, I guess, is I think this false dichotomy doesn't make sense here because I don't think taxpayers um, accept uh, that the government should be doing one thing um, with one department, another thing with another department, with none of them speaking together. And I think, as Mike has said earlier, many of the countries uh, that struggle the most to get out of, con- uh, of poverty are conflict ridden. So it doesn't make sense out there either. You, you, if you take the, the latest studies that show that uh, more and more uh, poor people live in middle-income countries, but middle-income countries can also be conflicted. Th- these are not separate categories.
4: But, but Madeline, the, the polls have been done, actually, in Afghanistan. In, in the new war on want report on Afghanistan, the polls show quite clearly that in the south of the country where the main NATO operations are taking place, three-quarters of all Afghan people believe it is wrong to work with the occupation forces and 70% of them feel that all of the military action has been negative. And over the last four or five years, some of the early gains, perhaps, have been lost again. So I think it's clear that the, the battle for hearts and minds is failing, and it's failing because it's in the context of a military occupation. People are not stupid. You can't just wish that away.
0: It's failing, because li- arguably, because they're losing. It, when we've seen the Asian foundation polls that have been conducted over the last uh, seven or eight years, what we've seen is where things go well even when the military is there, people are quite pleased. People favour success. It's not. It's not surprising. But if we're going to if we're going to conduct this
3: debate on the on the basis of value for money, then um, it's important to understand how we can achieve how we can achieve the best results in the most difficult places. And all the evidence shows that that's not substantially through. PRTs. It's not substantial. It's at least in in most parts of Afghanistan. So, you know, the schools built by PRTs. Uh, a a deficit evaluation showed were about thirty percent more expensive than schools built by the Afghan government um, themselves. Some of the best gains in female education have been done through community based schools um, that operate now in every province of Afghanistan, including in the most difficult places like Helmand. These are schools embedded in communities, quite separate from the military forces, um, often in community spaces that are kind of low profile and. And not so much at risk of of, of Taliban attack. So if we're looking at where we're going to get the best results in the most difficult places, that's actually something that is really challenged by the kind of militarisation and politicisation we're talking about.
1: So what's the way forward for NGOs who deliver aid in conflict zones like Afghanistan? We asked Michiel Hoffman, former country representative for Médecins Sans Frontières in Afghanistan. Those NGOs who are dependent on this uh, government funding will find themselves in a difficult uh, situation. So either you accept those funds and therefore you accept that you cannot be uh, an impartial uh, or neutral actor in this uh, conflict. Or uh, uh, the scope of your programs will be uh, extremely limited. So there's a few NGOs that can tap into uh, large amounts of private funds. And those NGOs, I think uh, it's imperative that they make a choice to, to recognize that you can't have your cake and eat it. So you cannot, on the one hand, uh, development programmes that uh, very clearly have uh, as their objective to support the government uh, structures in Kabul, which, because it's a conflict, is actually just one of the parties in the conflict. And on the other hand, say, but we are also engaged in humanitarian activities that are completely uh, impartial and independent. Mike, Oxfam takes money from DFID. Aren't you contributing to the problem?
3: We're a multi-mandate agency. and That means that we do both humanitarian work and long-term development work. And we take money, uh, about 10% of our our global funding comes from governments. We don't take any US money in Afghanistan. We do have some DFID funding, although that's currently under review, partly because of some of the more um, kind of vocal and robust statements that have been made by DFID ministers recently about recruiting aid for national security purposes. And that's actually posing real question marks about whether we're going to be able to continue that funding. I
1: mean it's quite a dilemma for you isn't it because there are clearly people who can benefit from aid in Afghanistan and the work you do is in some cases helping women and children on the other hand it raises all the concerns that you yourself are expressing. It's a demo, it's a
3: dilemma about the, the the safety of the communities where we work but the real dilemma is about the purposes for which for which development projects are being are being deployed. So we won't work with PRTs for instance. We we will make sure that our aid projects are not being used for the military purposes of um, NATO powers in Afghanistan. We do work on projects that are aligned with Afghan government priorities, um, like the national the national solidarity program, for instance, which is which works through local community-based structures. It's money that comes from Kabul, and there are community uh, councils that are set up under the NSP program that decide how money is spent in their communities. What what makes that kind of work impossible is where large government government donors are are recruiting and publicly recruiting aid for for national security purposes.
1: The US General Stanley McChrystal said, modern warfare is not fought around people, but among them. The key objective is the people. That makes development a tactic of war. Mike, isn't there a problem here that basically the nature of warfare has changed and you may not like the fact that aid agencies are losing their neutrality, but it's hard to see how it can be avoided?
3: It's certainly the case that the... The nature of the humanitarian space in which humanitarian work, aid workers work, has, is changing. The uh, attacks on aid workers and the communities where they work are, are dramatically increasing and have dramatically increased since uh, 2003. Partly because there are more people on the ground, but also because there's a rise in kind of politically motivated attacks. So the kind of the, the kind of exempt political space in which humanitarian and to some degree development workers were working before no longer exists in a number of conflicts. But that makes it more important, not less, to make sure that where those actors are working, they're not being seen as being part of the military effort.
1: Daniel, is that possible? Is it possible to draw distinctions between development workers who are working for the government and those that are not
0: well, first of all, I think it's important to say because a retired U.S. general has a certain view of how a war is conducted and the role of development is not the same thing as saying the British government um, agrees with it or approaches the challenge in the same way. I think it's, it's, it's quite important to make that distinction. Um, and I think it's also important to make distinctions between places like Afghanistan – and conflicted areas, uh, for example, in sub-Saharan Africa, or even extreme humanitarian emergencies like the tsunami, where there was a requirement, I think everybody acknowledges today, of cooperation between development and, and military actors. So I think what we what we see when we look across the world, rather than just Afghanistan, or even uh, a smaller piece of Afghanistan as Hellman, uh, is a myriad of different ways in which governmental, uh, non-governmental actors are, are trying to work together. Um, and different governments, like the British, are trying, as I understand it, uh, to maintain a certain respect for the humanitarian but space. But the
1: shrinking of this humanitarian space, doesn't that... I think, not I think worry.
0: We, well, I think we have to distinguish between humanitarian space and development space they 're not the same thing. Development has always been um, not just about delivering things but about helping societies develop, allowing uh, governments to be freely elected and distribute goods to their s- citizens and be judged accordingly that 's a developmental process. A humanitarian process is when we 've had a disastrous emergency, and uh, we need a, an expeditious delivery of goods, and those who are most in need need to get that. no political consequences. Um, ...must be uh, factored in. So there's a huge distinction between development space, in my view, and humanitarian space.
4: John? I think it's very interesting to think back eight years and when the invasion of Iraq was going on... ...the British government approached many of the aid agencies asking them if they would go in as a second wave of the invasion to be able to do this hearts and minds work alongside the British forces. And Oxfam and many of the other agencies said, no, we will not do that. And I think that question comes up again now to the aid agencies who are working in these countries. Whose side are you on here? Because for War and Want, we don't go in as an aid agency. We work with the resistance forces if we believe that's where the popular feeling is. And in Iraq and in Palestine, that's been our call. So the question for Oxfam, Save the Children, whose side are you on and take the consequences
3: of that decision? The critical question is 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 that we need to look at what the context looks like in different places. So, in northern Pakistan, siding with NATO forces looks incredibly different to working with, a, a, you know, a military logistics person in, say, Haiti. Um, the second thing to say is that, um, in terms of whose side we're on, we're certainly not on the side of any government in Afghanistan. And we're we're certainly not on the side of any military force in Afghanistan. And we're very clear that none of our activities are aligned with their objectives. Our activities are aligned with the objectives of the communities where we work.
1: Jonathan, you've you've reported from Iraq, Afghanistan, many other conflict zones. Listening to this conversation, what are the thoughts going through your head about how this might develop in the future?
2: Well, I think you have to make a distinction between conflict prevention, and there's a lot of aid can help in that, and it's quite neutral, it's not political. It's just keeping countries stable and preventing them breaking up. There's conflict uh, um, resolution which is also very important. And then there's conflict. And I think the problem about aid in Afghanistan, a war is going on. I think it is a complete oxymoron to try and deliver aid in a war zone. You have to have conflict resolution. And the only solution in Afghanistan is to have talks. Talks between the men with the guns on both sides. The government, which combined with the US and the UK now has about half a million armed people on the government side, and whatever number it is, 35,000 or something on the other side. There have to be talks. And, 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 so and until say, that happens, I think aid is just pouring money down the drain.
1: So it's a sequential thing. Have the talks, get the peace into place, peace. and then uh, reconstruction. The post-conflict
2: or conflict prevention, but not in the middle of conflict.
1: Well, that's all for this week's Guardian Focus podcast. My thanks to Jonathan Steele, Daniel Korski, Mike Lewis, and John Hillary. I'm Madeleine Bunting. The producer was Joe Wheeler, and the researcher was Claire Provost.